You would pray with me for the preached word. Our Father, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive the word that you have ordained for us to hear this morning. We pray that you would be with Stephen as he opens the word for us and preaches while our pastor is away. We ask that you would be with him to give him boldness and clarity of mind as he delves into the word with us. We pray that you would send your spirit to come and open our hearts to receive it, that you would remind us of why we are here. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Good? All right. Get my stuff together here. It is good to be in the pulpit once again. And I have to confess to you that preaching um, expositorily through a book of the Bible in fits and and starts, so to speak, has proven to be a little bit challenging. Um, I began preaching in 1 Peter uh, back in 2019, and so we're just now into chapter 4. So, uh, just preaching periodically, keeping continuity in my thoughts has been a little bit of a struggle. So bear with me as I preach through 1 Peter chapter 4, the first six verses this morning. I heard Todd Gill preach on this very passage recently, and one of the things that he reminded his congregation is that this is a letter written to the church. And as such, the letter that Peter wrote did not have chapter breaks and verse breaks so it flowed continuously and peter peter does a really good job of pointing us back and forth to all of the principles that he is trying to get through to us in this letter while these verses and and chapters are very helpful to us they would not have been there in the original text so as we as we study this let's try to remember how those things went in, in the previous words that he wrote. So, as we begin, let me, let me remind us of the last couple of chapters, or last couple of paragraphs, I should say, in, in chapter 3. The first, the next to last paragraph in chapter 3, we saw hope and suffering. We saw that if we follow Christ, we will suffer for his sake, but we should not fear those who cause suffering, because the hope of the gospel will overcome suffering. And then in verses 18 through 22, Peter focuses on Christ's fleshly suffering. And we saw that his his suffering on the cross was effectual in atoning for the sins of man. The Lord will preserve a people for himself. Through faith, God will save his people by his grace. 
Those saints were bought and paid for by Christ's suffering on the cross. And now as I read through this letter, I, I try to categorize, categorize it into big ideas. And sometimes the big ideas are easy and, and they come right off to the top of the page and sometimes they're hard to break into bite-sized pieces. And in full disclosure, my goal this morning when I first, when I first started looking at this was to preach all the way through verse 11, which would be the first two paragraphs that we see here. And I had it all lined out. And I thought, okay, this is going to be great. The first, the first section of it is about the hardships of the world, and, and the second section of it is, is how do we combat the hardships of the world. Perfect. And then I started studying. <laughs> and then I thought, there's no way that I'm going to be able to get all of that into one sermon. So, this morning, we are going to talk about the hardships of the world. And in the first six verses here in in 1 Peter chapter 4, the big idea is that living in this fallen world is hard, but there is great blessing in following Christ and sharing him with others. So we'll see this in three categories today, hopefully, if I do a fair job. The first category will be Christ's suffering shows us the way. Christ's suffering shows us the way. The second is that the sins of the flesh will be judged. And the third is preach the gospel. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, we'll begin with the first two verses and, and Christ's suffering showing us the way. I'll read those two verses again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So when we see that since therefore, that ties us directly back to what he was just talking about in chapter 3, in the previous paragraphs, that Christ's suffering, he suffered in the flesh. And what was that suffering like for him? His suffering on the cross is what Peter was just describing. And the, and the fact that, that the suffering on the cross by Christ was sufficient for the atonement for our sins. Now, when we think about Christ's suffering, we have to think about it in a couple of different ways. So, first of all, 
Just like when Pastor David was preaching on Christ's temptation back in Mark, we have to remember that his temptation was different than our temptation. His suffering was different than our suffering. But it was also the same. He suffered in many of the same ways that we suffered. When we think of that, we must remember, now try to paint this picture, right? Christ left the presence of our Father in heaven. He left paradise to come to earth. How, How big a sacrifice is that? He left paradise to come to live and to suffer these things unimaginably so that we have the fulfillment of the law, so that we have that earthly example of, of Christ coming and living sinlessly, even through all of that suffering. When we think about him leaving paradise, for the unbeliever, think about it this way, and, and I know we've all heard these statements before. Think about this. For the unbeliever, earth is as close as they will ever get to heaven. But for the, for the believer, earth is as close as we'll ever get to hell. And that's where Jesus came from paradise to be, so that he could suffer physically, he could suffer emotionally, as an example for each of us to live by. So how did he suffer like us? He suffered physically. He suffered hunger, thirst, cold, hot, tired, all the ways that we suffer in the flesh. When Pastor David preached about the temptation recently, 40 days without food. Have you been that hungry before? I haven't. That was, that was suffering in the flesh for him. That was, that was a, a hunger um, in, in his earthly body. And in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, no need to turn there, but if you want that for your notes, we read that, So then, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. And when he had passed through Samaria, and he had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down. He sat down in a public place, in a place where Jesus would not have been welcomed. In Samaria, he he would not have been welcomed there, but he was tired. He sat down by the well. He suffered the same way we do. Can can we relate to that? Can we we relate to to that that tiredness of of being on a long journey? Um, Most of us journey comfortably these days in air-conditioned automobiles and things of that nature, but they didn't have that luxury. But we can still relate. We work outside in the, in the elements. We, we have to um, do things that, that physically make us tired from time to time. So we, so we can relate to that. He, he, and we can see that body, the bodily, the fleshly suffering that Christ went through so that he could relate, so that he knew what we were going through. Like us, Christ also suffered emotionally. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, it describes it. 
Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and told his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Can we relate to that? Can, can we relate to that soul being deeply grieved? I'm sure we can think of instances where, where we have felt grief, where we have felt uh, the loss of a loved one, where we, have, where we have been wronged by someone or someone close to us, someone who loved us is going down a path that is leading them to destruction and they won't listen. Those are things that, that grieve us emotionally. Maybe we lost a job or, or there's some other family or friend drama that causes great emotional stress. Or maybe, or maybe we're standing up for our faith and, and those around us are ridiculing us for Christ's sake. These are just a few things that, that, we, have, that we have experienced in life. But, but have you ever sweated drops of blood that's what luke says that christ that's how that's how he says that christ was was grieved and emotionally suffering so much so much that he sweat drops of blood actual drops of blood he was in such agony for his betrayal before his betrayal Christ knew that one of his inner circle was about to betray him to man and that he was going to suffer a cruel crucifixion on the cross. How did he respond? Not my will, Father, but yours. Unlike us, Jesus suffered but didn't sin. If we continue in that passage in Matthew, verse 39 says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will be done. Christ suffered and didn't sin. And we can take great comfort from the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and forgive me, um, you don't hear pages turning, I can make it a lot bigger on my screen, not have to use these glasses so much, so um, I'm, I'm, I've got most of it in my notes here, so that I can read it a little easier. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he suffered like us but didn't sin. And like, unlike us, through his suffering, 
even right up to the final hours, just before he gave his last breath, what was his plea? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus came to serve, to serve man. Jesus came to be an example. He suffered and died a cruel death as an atonement for our sins. So back in our passage here in 1 Peter, Peter tells the believers that because of this, because of this, because of those things that we just discussed, we should arm ourselves with that same way of thinking. So what was Jesus' way of thinking? It's pretty simple. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. He's given us a great book of instructions here of what God's will is. Not, not, a, not our will, but God's will be done. That was, his, that was his way of thinking. Now, if you're reading there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, I'm sure I'm not the only one with curiosity about what Peter means here, about whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I have to admit that's a little bit of a head-scratcher for me. And there are many theories on what Peter meant here by that seizing from sin. And I think one that seems to make a lot of sense to me is from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, The apostle explains what he means by being dead to sin and seizing from sin, both negatively and positively. Negatively, a Christian ought no longer to live the rest of his time in the flesh to the sinful lust and corrupt desires of carnal wicked men, but positively he ought to conform himself to the revealed will of the holy God. So he's saying, Matthew Henry is, is telling us that this it's a mindset that Peter is talking about here, not necessarily actual sin, but the desire for sin, I guess, would be a, a better way to describe that. And Peter uses similar language throughout his letter. Like I was saying earlier, Peter, um, in his letter, he, he continues to remind us of the big, of the big ideas, of the, of the things that we need to really be concerned with. Over in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he says it this way. 1 Peter 1, 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, and here's, here's the key words here, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We were ransomed. So he tells us that we should be holy, and he tells us that we were ransomed. So we should not desire those feudal ways of our forefathers. Then over in, in chapter 2, verse 24, he says it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He suffered in the flesh that we might die to sin. In light of these passages, R.C. Sproul says it this way. The passage speaks of believers desired not to sin because of their real identification with Christ, which gives them power and motivation not to sin. The, the bent of believers' lives 
should be toward a progressive seizing from sin. How they will, however, they will not experience an absolute cessation of sin on this side of glory. So these well-respected brothers who have both gone on to glory would say that it's, a, it's an idea of, of our desire, not so much actual sin that, that Peter was referring to here. So Peter's not the only apostle that had these ideas. We could turn over to Galatians chapter 5. And if you are turning there, you might ha- if you've got a bookmark, you might put one here because we're going to come back to it. Over in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says it this way in chapter in verse 16. But I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then down in verse 24, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. So Paul is using similar language to what Peter's saying here, that we should die to the flesh. That if we've suffered in the flesh, that that should be put, put aside, that we should not live in that way anymore, in that way of sin. We should put that aside. We should die to our flesh. We also know that in Romans chapter 6, there is a very, um, a very clear message of dying to the old self. Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but of grace. So we see that as we've suffered in the flesh, and we've put that aside, as Peter tells us, that we should be seizing from sin, that we should be dying to sin, that we should not be under the dominion of sin any longer. For however long the Lord leaves us on this earth, if it be 30 minutes or 30 years or 300, not 300, but you get the point. Um, For however long he leaves us here, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. If we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, we must die to our flesh. Our desire should be to walk in the Spirit the way Jesus teaches us. The way that he showed us through his suffering on the cross. That he would live for the will of God. Which brings us to the next point this morning. Because of this suffering and because of these sins in our lives that we must die from, we know that the sins of the flesh will be judged. So let's read in in verse 3 through 5 back in our text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe this? Is the time that is past sufficient for doing these things that Peter mentioned? Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now this is by no means a a full list, an exhaustive list of sins that we commit and that the Gentiles commit. And, And remember that he is comparing us here, saying that we were these people, and now we're not. So that time has passed. And so one of the things that I was curious about is why this list? Why this particular list? Why did he list these things? Um, and I think one of the things that, that stand out to me is that, that these, are, these are things that, that most of us deal with regularly. And, and the categories here, um, if, if, you'll, if we look a little bit deeper, we see there's three basic categories. Uh, the first two categories are, are pretty similar. But the first category deals with sexual sin. So he says in the first part of it there, living in sensuality and passions. So if we look at the Greek, it actually translates lustfulness and lasciviousness. Now, lasciviousness, now that's a word that we use regularly, right? So, when we don't understand the words, we go back to older meanings. So, we look at the Webster's 1828, we see that lasciviousness is described as looseness, irregular indulgence of animal desires, wantonness, and lustfulness. So, we are aware here that Peter is warning against the pagan sexual immorality that was rampant at the time. Can we relate? Are we that much different today than we were 2,000 years ago? He's warning against that norming of sexual immorality. And then he talks about drunkenness and drinking parties and orgies. They all fall into the same category 
together with um, drunkenness, drinking parties, orgies, fall in the same category, and I know you might be looking at me like, mm, I'm not sure about that one. So also here we have to look back to the older manuscripts. We look back to the Greek, and we see that the word that is translated as orgies here was actually translated in the Greek as banquetings. Other words that we don't normally use, but banquetings would have been referring to the great feast that the Gentiles and the pagans participated in of those times where they would get together and, and sacrifice to these false gods and they would just overindulge in all sorts of foods and drinks and all of these things. So the apostle is, is warning us against the excesses of the flesh here. Don't, don't eat just because it's good. Don't drink just because it's good. He's not condemning food or alcohol, but the misuse of it. He's saying don't overindulge in it. So these categories, sexual immorality and overindulgence, I'm sure we can all agree that there's times in our lives where those things come up, where we have to think through those things. Now this last one is one that's probably the most common of all our sin. If we really get down to the brass tacks, the, the sin of idolatry is probably the most common of all. Now, and it's probably the one that we all think we have the least, um, the least worry with. But let's think about what idolatry is. Again, according to Webster's. The worship of idols, images, or anything made by hands, or which is not God. Excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration. Now that second one, the first one is one that we, that we all say, oh yeah, no, no, no problem. We don't worship anything that's not God. But that second one, that second definition, excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration. Anybody ever have any of those thoughts in their mind? How much we like this thing or that thing, that pet sin that we have, or, or not even, we don't consider it a pet sin. Some of us worship our kids that way. Some of us worship sports that way. Some of us worship all types of things that we adore more than we adore God. So was Peter telling us that we shouldn't be attached to anything on this earth? Should we not adore anything on this earth? Of course we should adore things on this earth. Of course we should be attached to things on this earth. God gave us many good gifts to enjoy. Our spouse, our children, our friends, our pets. The question we must ask ourselves is do I adore these or anything else for that matter more than God? Do they take the place of God in my life? Am I more, am I more attached to to the desires of my flesh, to the things that, that make me happy on this earth than I am to my Savior. If we are, we must repent of that idolatry. These sins are self-serving sins of the flesh. Some baby Christians or non-believers might say, well, Jesus just doesn't want us to have any fun. But we know that's not true. So I told you, mark that place in... Galatians chapter 5. Turn back over there. And Paul 
like Peter, has described the sins of the flesh. He's described the things that we shouldn't be doing in life. But then, in verse 22, he talks about what we should be doing. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, you're banned from having conversations with my wife after this because we don't need to know which ones of these I don't display very often. But these are the fruits of the Spirit. And th this is what we should be striving for. And those things are things that will bring us great joy. But that, that key thing that he, that he said there in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have to crucify that flesh. We have to live for Christ Jesus. It's not about fun or not fun. We know, no matter what other local pastors might say, that we are not living our best life now. This is not what it's about, folks. It's the next life that we're worried about. It's about eternal life in paradise with Christ. Earlier in the passage there in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says that the time, is, the time that is past suffices for doing these things. Has it passed? Has that time passed? Have we put those things away? Are those unbelievers around you surprised that you do not participate in their debauchery? Or are we still just one of the guys, one of the gals? Have you been maligned for not participating in their, deba in their debauchery, for standing against it? Folks, I'm here to tell you today, that you better know where you stand. It's easy if for, for all of our lives, most of us, for all of our lives, it's been very easy for us to stand on the promises of God, to be bold and to be upfront and honest with folks about who we are as Christians. It's been easy. No, no one questions, especially in the South. No one questions that. 95% of people would probably say that they are Christian if you ask them. But the world's changing. The world is changing. There is a time coming, likely sooner rather than later, when we will be maligned for not embracing the debauchery of the pagans. Hear that, embracing, not tolerating, not looking the other way, not live and let live, but embracing that. That's coming. Look around. Look in other countries where, where we say, no, we're not going to do that. Oh, no, you have to. And, and here comes the law. Here comes the, the mobs after, after Christian people because they won't embrace it. So we better be ready for that maligning. We better be ready to hear that and to feel that suffering for, for being those who have put that in the past, who have put that away, put that aside. But be of good cheer brothers and sisters, the good news is that Christ's suffering 
was and is sufficient. If we turn from the sins of our flesh, if we embrace the suffering from the Gentiles, we will not be judged the same way they will. But rest assured, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Because judgment is coming, we should preach the gospel. So back in our text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 say this. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, these passages like these, like this one, um, there, there is some eschatological references in this, and that's not my strong suit. I'm one that is, I know where I stand, but I'm not going to die on that hill. So uh, those are things that, that are a little bit difficult, but they're worth digging into. So let's dig in here a little bit. And one thing that we know for sure, that we know for certain, is that every one of us and every one of them will stand before their creator. Each of us will be judged for the deeds of this life. Particularly those who have maligned us. So when we are tempted to retaliate against those who have made fun of us or harmed us or just don't think the same way we do. We have to remember what Paul told to the Romans in, in chapter 12 when he said, bless those who persecute you. And vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our God is just and holy. But he's also merciful. And we remember also that Peter told us that, that we were one of these. We did act this way. That's who we were before. So because we've had mercy, we should show mercy. We should have compassion for those who, who are still lost, who are still in that same mindset, and, then, and we should be prepared to preach for them, to, to show them the good news of Christ. And, and as we come to verse 6 here, this is another tough one. And, you know, Peter, it's funny, Peter says in chapter, in, in the second letter, that Paul's writing was difficult to understand. Um, just saying, Peter's was not all that easy either. So in verse 6, another one that I've kicked around and, and tried to make sense of the best I can, looked at lots of different commentaries, lots of different uh, men that I trust, uh, a lot of old commentaries. And when he says that, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. I, I, it's, it's hard. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. But let's start by saying what we know it's not. Right? We know that it's not those in hell. Because we have, we have heard some people that would say that. They would say that, that he's talking about he went to hell to preach. Now, I'm not going to argue that he went to hell to preach. I'm not going there right now. But I am arguing that he would not have preached the gospel to those in hell. Because those who are, who are judged to hell are judged to hell. They're not, they're not in purgatory. They're either in heaven or they're in hell. So those who are in hell 
would not have had the message of the gospel preached to them. They would have had the condemnation preached, the victory over sin and death preached. So we, so we can comfortably say that that's not what Peter was referring to here. If <clears throat> that was where he was at, so, so we, can, we can mark that one off. That's not it. That's not it. Because he says he preached the good news, the gospel. So the prevailing argument in many reform circles is that what Peter was referring to here is those who, who he had preached the gospel to. Now remember that he, is, he wrote this letter to people that he had, he had ministered to before. So this was, there were people in this group that he had preached to before, and some of those may have died. And he's, and he's saying that even then, they, they heard the gospel preached when they were alive, but now they are dead. So even to those who are dead is, is what the prevailing argument is. Um, like I said, that is, a, that is a little bit of a challenge for me. I'm not sure that that's what... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure there, that's a tough one. I, I could even go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and say that, that he told us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. He's preaching to those who are dead in that, in that sense as well. So there's a, a lot of different ways that we could say that he's preaching to those who are dead. But the point is, that we should take away from this, is that he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel, the good news of Christ. And so when we say that he preached the gospel, and, and I tell you that preaching the gospel is one of the points that we make here, let's be clear that not every one of us in this room is called to stand in a pulpit and preach. But each one of you who are called according to the purposes of God are called to preach the gospel to your neighbors, who are called to preach the gospel in your house, to your children, to those around you. Each of you are called to that. Each of us are called to support the gospel ministry, to be, to be concerned for missions. We all have a part in preaching of the gospel. So as we prepare to close, let's dwell on a couple of passages about preaching. No need to turn there. I'll read them for us. First one is Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Now then, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Are we telling people the good news about Christ? And the, the second one is in Titus chapter 2. And I'll start in verse 11 and read through verse 15, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's preaching the gospel with the way you live your life. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own passion, 
who are jealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's the gospel message. We wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and purify for himself a people. So are we zealous for the gospel the way that Peter t- or whether that Paul tells Titus to be here? Ashamedly, I can tell you that this week, I missed opportunities to preach the gospel this week. Many. I think back on my week and I think, that guy, that guy, that guy. I talk to people all day, every day. And I miss those opportunities. And I know that after the conversation's over with that the Holy Spirit was prompting me to, to have that conversation. And I miss them. I miss them regularly. Are we showing others the gospel in the way that we live? The way that he tells us here that living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present time. Are we, are we living our life that way? Are we supporting the ministries of the local church? Are we concerned for missions? Brothers and sisters, this is our encouragement today. That Christ's suffering shows us the way to live so that believers will not be condemned by the sins of the flesh, but live according to the Spirit of God. And we should be ready and willing to support and participate in the preaching of that gospel message. I pray that that is where we are today, that that is what our desire is today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God, it is my prayer at this time, Lord, that you would Convict the hearts of sinners. Lord, that those who don't know you would come to know you, God. That you would use your ordinary means, Lord, to draw those to yourself. God, I pray that the words that I said today that are not true to your word would be quickly forgotten. God, I pray that that your word would be planted in the hearts of your people and it would be effectual in their lives each of our lives lord that we would come to know you better that we would come to know your will better that we would understand your word better and that we would share that with those around us i pray all these things in the precious name of jesus christ amen